It's Bumia Kinesotu, and I just wanted to pop in real quick to say thank you to the Truman National Security Project, to which I am a member, for providing support of this episode. Truman is a national organization that brings together diverse and accomplished professionals to advocate for smart foreign policy and national security issues. Go to trumanproject.org to learn more. I also want to thank the Diversity and National Security Network, to which this podcast is a member of, in particular, Asha and Laura, for giving me great insight as to how we could have this conversation. Learn more about all that we're doing at diversityandnationalsecuritynetwork.com. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you know that we value balancing perspectives, having a healthy debate, and an authentic curiosity about very complicated issues. But if I'm honest, it's been really tough these last four years to watch America on the global stage. So this is a partisan episode because a lot is at stake in November. And guess what? The world is watching us. What will it take for us to walk it like we talk it and to show the world what we're made of? We talk about all of that and more on the next episode of What in the World. What is up, everyone? It's Bumi Akinisotu. Welcome to What in the World, your home for understanding global political issues and why they all matter to you. At the time of this recording, we are just a few days away from the Democratic National Convention, and we are just a day after Kamala Harris accepted the vice presidential nominee. It's a really an exciting time if you are a Democrat, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but in the words of Jay-Z, he has said, the streets is watching. And by streets in this context, I mean the world is watching us, the United States. They are watching us over the last four years pull out of long-held trade agreements. They're watching us posture at the global summits such as the G8 and the G7 and the G20 and how we treat our other allies in those in in those summits or in those spaces they're watching the disintegration of our voting rights in this country they are watching racial injustice and political unrest in the streets and yes they are watching us not wear our masks and delve deeper into the swallows of this global pandemic that is coronavirus. So not that America is the center of the world, but we are kind of important. Some might argue that we are the most influential, powerful country in the world, but that influence has dwindled as country leaders and certainly their citizens, my family in Nigeria question what is happening to America, what is the relevance Where's our moral aptitude? What happened to the, the great democracy that is America? And so this upcoming election is a defining moment for our country. The Democrats have an opportunity as it relates to global engagement to rebuild, restore, hopefully make us cool again. And my guests are here with us on this episode to talk through some critical topics related to foreign policy and how the Democrats can reimagine or rethink the future of America as it relates to the, the world. It's a tall order, but I'm pretty confident that my fellow, my three fellow Chumanites can talk us through some, some of the issues. So first, I want to introduce our three guests, first starting with Anka Lee. Anka Lee is the director at Albright Stonebridge Group. It's a, glo a global political or global strategic firm here in Washington. 
He follows the developments in East Asia, and he has done so as an intelligence analyst. Uh, He's worked as a congressional staffer and a journalist. Anka is from Richmond, California. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Awesome. Callie in the building. Next, we have Meg Gulliford. Meg is a native of central Kansas, right, Meg? Yes, ma'am. And she is all things related to security, (laughs) war, Violence, all the very sad and depressing topics, but <laughs> but you know she's she's an expert in that space, and she's going to talk through some of the issues related to global threats and just all the wars and the the violence that's happening around the world. And then certainly not least is Lacey Healy. She is the founder and editor of the foreign policy magazine Inkstake, and uh, she's the CEO of Inkstake Media. Uh, her podcast is Things That Go Boom, which I love. Um, it takes a look at foreign policy and national security issues. And I, I love the sentence that says, in a way that doesn't make you want to gouge your eyes out. I <laughs> kind of. It's good, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's the way the world is sometimes. You just yeah. want to be like, why? What is going on? And she is from a uh, small town, Oregon. Again, um, all three of us coming from different parts of the country, which which I think will lend a great perspective. So the three of you, welcome to the show. Welcome to What in the World. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. So let's let's jump into it. So we have this wonderful DNC, the Democratic National Convention happening. And, you know, we're all a part of Truman. And to a degree in common with the DNC, we have just certain beliefs about the way the world operates uh, or we, we think it should operate in the way that America should engage in the world. Some would argue that this approach is called the quote unquote progressive, liberal, democratic way, whatever. But for people who already are turned off by this being a political conversation, let's do some level setting here. And I want to ask each of you in one word, how would you describe a progressive foreign policy or national security in one word? And Meg, we'll start with you. How would you describe in one word progressive foreign policy? I think a progressive foreign policy has to be prudent. That's the kind of sort of policy that really has to be thinking about the future and forward leaning and not really just focused on the here and now, but understanding that the actions you take now will move you into the future and set you up for future success or lack of success. (laughs) Got it. So forward-leaning, prudent, long-term thinking. (laughs) All right. Lacey, what is one word to describe a progressive foreign policy or national security policy? I guess for progressive foreign policy or how, you know, in an ideal world, a progressive foreign policy or national security policy is empathetic, takes into consideration the people that are impacted by the policies and not just the policies that we're making in Washington, D.C. And that goes everywhere, top down from the language we use to the actual policies that we, we put in place on the ground. Okay. So it's empathetic. It thinks about mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord, that is not America first. But okay, let's, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Anka, what is your word to describe a progressive foreign policy? Actually, it's very similar. I, I actually thought about this as humanity. I think it really has to do with making sure that, um, you know, as progressives, we care about what stirs in the heart of people. And that exists not only for Americans, but for people around the world. 
how do we find those connections? How do we find our common humanity and make those alliances that can achieve a better world? And to me, I think that's really should be the core of our foreign policy values. Certainly this administration has had this America first platform that it's held onto and has been the crux of how it has removed the United States from several agreements and organizations and or threatened, if you will, uh, in some cases. (laughs) (laughs) And so given the three things that you all have said, so prudent, empathetic, and it's human, right? Um, It has some heart connection to that. What would you say to someone who is like, the America first policy takes into account all of that by putting America first. It puts America first. It is forward thinking because American foreign policy has to look at America's interest first. Our long-term interests, the people, the middle class, to Lacey's point, the people on the ground. And we do make connections. We're a part of NATO. I'd say look around. Look around at the impacts of, of, of trade policies on farmers in America. Look around at the impacts of coronavirus policies on uh, at the elderly and, and um, vulnerable populations in America. Look at, look at all of uh, the, the priorities that we're currently laying out pretty clearly. Those policies aren't uh, speaking directly to the things that help the middle class, that help average Americans. They're, you know, speaking to you know, a strong economy that supports uh, corporations and businesses and and supports uh, the folks who are already making money. So we're not in a place we don't, you know, it, we can we can talk all day long about whether or not these things are supporting people and whether or not it's better to, you know, put America first and really think about what's best for Americans. But when you actually get down to brass tacks, that's not very much what it looks like right now. I think you have the issue, and this segues off of Lacey's point very nicely, what America? Because all of those are elements of America, the corporations, the wealthy, our military. But what elements of the nation are you putting forth? And what elements are you highlighting and privileging over the rest? I think that is something that is one of the issues with the current iteration of America First is that it privileges a very small segment of America. And those Americans who are struggling to put food on the table, to stay in jobs, are worried about how to send their kids to college or they may not have those concerns, but just care about those issues. Those are the Americas, in quotes, that are not being served right now. And that is scary because I would say that is the vast majority of the United States. When you see the stimulus package that came out in response to COVID, the number of businesses that were getting the grants um, and corporations, like why does the NFL need one of these? To that point, just to add, the latest Republican coronavirus relief package contained money for F-35s. F-35s are great at fighting coronavirus, right? That makes no sense whatsoever. When we're talking about 
the money that we spend put, put toward the military, we're also talking about money that's going to you know, Lockheed. We're also talking about money that's going to those corporations, that's going to those contractors, that's keeping them afloat during this time when others are not being kept afloat. I also think it's, it's really problematic when you're talking about America first, but you're not really doing anything to prepare people to be fighting and winning in that world. If you really, really want to believe that the United States is going to win on the world, you are going to do all you can to make sure that we are given the right tools and arsenal and equipment to fight in that world. That means, you know, we have to have the right training, strong community colleges to make sure that people have the right skills to compete. Healthcare for everybody, if in a very just uncertain global economy, you know, if jobs are lost, people can have a certain sense of certainty that, you know, globalization is rapid, abrupt, and could be problematic in many ways, but I want to have some sense of baseline that I'll be okay. So if you, if you truly believe that you want to put the United States first and win in this world, you better have things to back up with that. And right now, I'm not seeing any of that. There is no domestic preparation for that. And secondly, it's actually quite dangerous because when you say America first, everybody's going to start saying that they are also first. And then you can start getting China first, Russia first. Um, Germany first. Where does that end? Mm, this is a great thread I, I want to pull on. So the Democratic Party, they've laid out, you know, their position on various issues, one of them being global threats. And they name the usual suspects, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, so on and so forth. And a lot of it is, you know, wanting to first make sure that no one gets access to nuclear weapons, making sure that we work with our allies, making sure that we have the best and the, the best military that's available. But it doesn't it doesn't, you know, use some of the hardball language that maybe the, the right would use. But certainly it acknowledges the fact that the military is important. Diplomacy is important. All the tools are important. Knowing that we've got a defense budget that's $740 billion, I want to know, in a way, have we benefited from investing in our military? And with the Democratic Party, how do they make the case to constituents? Maybe that is a military community that relies heavily on the military presence. How do you make the case to them that investing in all of these other safety nets, which you rightly pointed out, is actually going to keep us safe, right? Because that's actually what countries do is they keep their people safe. So how do you, if you're a progressive leader, make that case to someone that investing in one thing or more of another thing is going to reap the same benefits as $740 million in your defense budget? I think certainly we have to make our investments in our military. The question is how smart and, and invest in what and how are we doing it? And I think that's certainly a legitimate question. But I also think we have to be better at explaining that in this century, winning the world doesn't just mean winning in a military sense. It means winning in the economic sense. It means winning in the soft power sense. It means winning in the education sense. It means winning in the scientific sense. And it means also winning that your people are achieving the highest living standards, that they can keep rising in their age expectancy, which by the way, this country right now is going the wrong direction. You don't have those, you're not going to be able to win any battle. And, and another thing is, it's not just Kansas or Ohio or states that we think are the middle or, or not coastal. 
I left Washington, D.C. about three and a half years ago to go home after Trump was elected to help California set up a new international relations program for the state government because California wanted to step up and lead. And what I notice is people think, well, California is really a blue state. You know, what, do you need any convincing in a blue state or coastal state that global engagement is important? Well, I mean, I think San Francisco and Los Angeles are not California. It is California, but it's not the only California. If you drive 25 miles to the east and you go into the Central Valley towns, you'll see places with 25% unemployment. So it is a national issue. It is a national conversation. It's not a blue red state conversation. And that's what I've seen that's been quite profound to me. And it's quite quite a lesson, actually, for us to think about if we're going to move forward with this debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just to add on to that a little bit and, and go bring it back to the F-35, I would just say this is absolutely not an either or. There is definitely not an either we have a strong military or we invest in, in, in people and in these other things. It's also not an automatic that if we invest in our military, that's, as we said before, going to our military. It's quite often going to programs like the F-35, which are way over budget and way too complicated and have had problems because they are so technologically complicated. There are other options. We don't always have to go to the nth degree when it comes to the fanciest, most expensive, newest thing. There are ways for us to have a strong military that actually makes us stronger because if things that we build are not so complicated, then we can rebuild them faster. And that means if we actually do get attacked by something other than coronavirus, uh, (laughs) and we really do have a Pearl Harbor-like situation, and our military is knocked out, we can come back faster if we build things that are less technologically complex. So actually, there are lots of ways that we're making ourselves more vulnerable by spending more money. We've gotten ourselves into a bad situation where the amount of money that we're spending on the military actually is taking away from these other things and it's not making us safer. From your perspective, how can a progressive leader navigate these complicated spaces? What is the progressive approach to situations like Syria that will hopefully finally bring some stability to the region, hopefully give some sense of ending, (laughs) whether if that's Afghanistan or Syria, just some ending to the conflict in that place. I feel like Americans have war fatigue. We've got a lot where we're just like, when is, what is going on? When is it going to end? So how does a progressive leader approach these complicated spaces? I think with Syria, and this is not a conflict which in which I have deep knowledge, but just um, the general idea is, what are you trying to end? Are you trying to end the interventions from external parties, the external support to various rebel groups, or the civil war that's actually happening? I don't think that the United States has a good idea of what it's actually trying to do there. I think a progressive approach to this really has to be rooted in strong diplomacy. While it is very different But these parties came to the table. When you talk about something like the Paris Agreement and what Kelly Sims Gallagher of Tufts University was able to do when she was with the Obama administration, she and her colleagues were able to bring all of these countries together to come to an agreement on something that very few of them actually wanted to agree upon. You're asking countries to sacrifice in ways 
it shows that diplomacy can work, but you have to be committed to it. You have to have an understanding of what you're trying to accomplish before you start a major effort, like a major diplomacy campaign. So you're basically saying there needs to be like some diplomatic foreplay here before we jump into like. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, this is this is a great way to to segue into something that I know a lot of Americans can relate to, and that is human rights. And the major criticism of the United States, of course, is that we can no longer wave our finger at other countries when we have George Floyd, when we have Breonna Taylor, et cetera, et cetera. And so what do we do to walk our talk when it comes to human rights and at the same time, hold others accountable? Should we be even holding each other, uh, holding other people or other countries accountable when we've been struggling for so long to deal with some of the issues here in our own country? I actually think the most single, most important thing to do right now is to vote this president out of office. We are not going to be credible if a president who suggests that he's going to defund the Postal Service because he wants to limit votes and it can still be saying office. We cannot be credible if you have an administration who talks about delaying election in the same way that the Chinese government had in Hong Kong and he still stays in office. You cannot be credible if you have a president who deploys our federal officers to tear gas peaceful protesters in the same way that other regimes do. So I think the single most important thing we can do to regain our credibility is to make sure that people who actually believe in democracy and openness and freedom of expression and the rule of law can win again. As progressives, we really believe in government as an instrument for good. If you do it in the right way, you use it wisely, you use it responsibly, you can actually do good for a lot of people. And we've seen in the last couple of years what happens when that tool is being used in a very negative and very problematic way. And it's caused tremendous damage. That's in many ways going to take a generation or two to repair. And I think for us, in order to be the, the absolute requirements, the starting point is we have to get this democracy housing order in the United States in the next three months. That is absolute minimum. Beyond that, we can chew gum and walk and chew gum too. <laughs> you know, again, going back to my earlier point is, you know, humanity, these things are not just American or British or Chinese or Russian. There are things that are universal. And I think we all not only have to hold others accountable, we also have to make sure others hold us accountable. It is a global process. And it is something that the United States government, because of our size and our influence, we should be setting that, you know, that process where a global conversation can take place if we have the right leaders. And so that's how we're going to carry on this century. Because if we go back to the, the conversation of being so and so first, if we neglect human rights, if we don't think about the universality of people's ideals and, and rights and interests, we go down a pretty terrible, dark rabbit hole. So I think those are the, the several order of things that we should be thinking about. That's easy, too. Everybody should just show up and vote. And I think the progressives can, can get their stuff together and get everybody out to vote. Lacey, what do you think? What is the way of navigating this? I see Meg shifting over there. I really want to hear what she has to say. Oh, but go I will for say, it, Meg. <laughs> when we as a country do not believe in the humanity of many of our citizens and the right to live, exist, and breathe as they are, we cannot believe in human rights for ourselves. That, however, does not mean that we should not want that from our leadership. 
this is a leadership issue overall in terms of saying, hey, this brown or black body is just as valuable and meaningful and embodies America as this white body. And we've lost people who fought and damn near died for that with no response from our leader to acknowledge that and celebrate that. However, there are plenty of people in this country who believe that black and brown people matter. And I think, and we're talking about matter. Like we're not talking about anything great. Just think that I matter enough to not get my ass beat. But also I'm from a place of privilege. There are enough people who would care if I died, but Joseph, who lives down the street, I need you to care because after George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all of the names that we can talk about, the number of people who look like me and don't look like me, and they're like, Meg, I would be there for you. And I'm like, yeah, got that. I need you to be there for Joseph, for Carmen, for Amanda, for whomever. People who look like me who may not have that wolf pack behind them. And that is the problem in the United States is that we struggle to believe that non-white, non-heterosexual, non-you know, lives matter. What's going on with black trans women? The fact that that isn't like burn the house down sort of situation is appalling to me. And so any American that's working outside this country in any fashion, it makes their lives much harder to one, be proud of their country, and two, to be able to say, what you're doing isn't right, because somebody can be like, well, get your house in order. I mean, right now, what we're doing is going into people's house and telling them how to clean when ours is raggedy as hell. It sure is. It's a whole raggedy. So my, my word, when I think of progressive, is actually what you just said, Meg, which is bold. It is a lot harder to sit with somebody and have a really difficult conversation, to have a moment of vulnerability, right? It is very difficult to try to use your intuition to understand a situation and come to some sort of solution or agreement, even even in the most minuscule way. It's a lot easier, though, to press a button on a bomb. And so that's what I love about what you said, Meg, is that it actually encapsulates what you're talking about, encapsulates a little boldness on the part of the United States to face its long-standing ills with race, with immigration, with human rights here at home, um, and to really reckon with that. And then, yes, allow the folks in our diplomatic community, our military even, to go out and do the work that our government asks them to go do on our behalf. My biggest fear right now is that folks are looking at the election right now to solve all of our problems. We think that November is going to come and go and, uh, you know, our allies are going to come back and the world is going to right itself and our democracy is not going to be under massive threat in the way that it currently is. And that is not true. And I am scared for our country right now. I am worried about long festering problems that we have had for far too long and ignored for far too long and that we are still ignoring and that we're going to continue to ignore. And 
I think that the best thing that we can do right now is look to November as a first step, but there are so many steps beyond that for us to get to a place where we can stand tall in the world, especially on human rights. Absolutely. Totally agree, Lacey. And I think a part of our ability to stand tall in the world is our economic well-being and the economic infrastructure and capacity of the United States. So a lot of people know that over the last several years, the Trump administration has put America first by basically placing high tariffs on other countries who provide the products uh, and the services that we all use in our day-to-day lives. That's everything from aluminum to washing machines, you name it. Uh, He's placed, or the administration has placed a tariff. According to the Peterson Institute of Economics, there are think tank here in Washington, D.C., a 25% import tax on automobiles and any retaliatory measures that we take could cost us 624,000 jobs just in the United States alone. And so, Anka, I want to get your thoughts on the way that progressive policymakers can help restore our economic well-being and give American families some confidence and some hope that American leaders are looking out for them. Two things I think I would say. One is we really have to figure out how do we bring dignity back into people's lives again. I think in the last generation, one of the biggest, I think, mistakes I will say we made is just because we save money doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Just because you can offshore things to produce overseas because you can actually, you know, enhance the shareholder value of the company or make things cheaper doesn't mean it's the right thing to do for your country or community. And as Meg said very well earlier, you have communities that's been devastated. Um, I mean, you know, for a long time, you know, and people's identity and how they found worth and value oriented around not just their family, but also their work. It's kind of like D.C., <laughs> yes, no, exactly. In, imagine imagine if we were these DC nerds that we are, suddenly losing that sense of community, suddenly losing that sense of going to, I don't know, fancy seminars talking about fancy ideas, and then you lose all of that. Your whole social life collapsed because your friends are no longer employed there. Just imagine what that would look like in Washington. And I think that's been happening in so many parts of the country. We have to find a way to re-energize finding really credible, good jobs for people in this country, making things again. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about reshoring manufacturing. I think it's a good idea. I think that's where you tie in conversation about workforce development, training. I think the Germans got some interesting ideas. We ask them. You know, if you want to have a transatlantic conversation, ask them. And, you know, the second thing I want to say is, and this is somebody who spent eight years in Washington, and one of the, the biggest disappointments in D.C. I always felt was just Yes, lack of diversity in the policy elite, but also the lack of perspective. How many people did the four of us really encounter are kind of have this kind of background of first-generation college-goer? And I'll give you just one concrete example. A lot of people ask, well, how come these business loans going to small businesses during COVID didn't work as well or weren't as widely applied? Because people who are drawing up these policies probably didn't have to bank at small community banks. They, 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 the entire understanding of economics and how things work in the world had to do with Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. And that's how they understand the world. And when you have people who are making these decisions and understanding how the right policies that can actually 
inject cash right now to black communities, to Latino communities, to Asian communities who don't quite frankly bank a bank of America because they have other things they do? Well, the fact that you didn't see that coming tells me that you have a perspective problem in the policy circle. Let's end the generation for us. Think about how we can bring dignity back to people, making sure people can actually have work in their lives and have jobs to do. Reshoring is a good thing. But concurrently, let's make sure that more people like us can bring some reality to the conversation because that's sorely missing for too long. Unfortunately, to Anka's point, we've set ourselves up such that our inequalities are so pervasive, so crippling that we find ourselves where we are, which is unemployment is super high. Unemployment is something that I think a lot of people can can relate to. And so I, I want to wrap up our conversation with this last question. You guys are part of the administration. It's the first 50 days. What's the first issue that you address? The first foreign policy, national security issue that you address? Anka, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> this is not fair, right? <laughs> Life isn't fair, Anka. I, I, yeah. <laughs> for the practicality of conversation, let's just be narrow about this, right? I'll just default to my area of expertise, which is China. It is no question the most critical challenge for our whole generation, not just from the military sense, but also from economics and investments and research and everything, everything. We have to find a way to make friends with some of our closest allies again, because this is not, this is not a challenge we can do alone. The United States cannot address the China challenge on its own. We have to find ways to work with the Germans, especially the, the League of Democracies, if you will, our, our Asian allies to figure out what is the right way to make sure that certainly a very real concern of Xi's assertive and authoritarian moves will not spiral out of control and lead to some very serious conflict around the world. I hope that, you know, by then we will have a credible uh, set of leaders, you know, Biden-Harris, who bring some credibility, credible faces, that we can actually begin to address this challenge with our friends who can begin to trust us again. All right, Lacey, <sighs> what's your first your first fifty day plan? What's the first thing? How do you even begin to choose one? Uh, <laughs> you walk back the most damaging things that have happened during this administration. Things like the Muslim ban and the border. Things that are you have to address immediately. Also falling back on my expertise, right? I have to make a plug for, there will be a budget submission due very shortly after this president takes office. That is a budget submission that is generally pretty baked by the time the president comes in, that thing is done, but there is still some ability to shape it. Uh, this president should make a statement with that budget, a values statement in as much as they can, in as much as they can make changes and push for changes in Congress as that budget works its way through Congress. They should really look at a human approach. Think about ways that we can make changes that are realistic in order to support people. They should also get the new START treaty dealt with and uh, think about the Iran deal because those things are ticking that are, are ticking time bombs as well. The new start treaty will expire in February. That also almost no time, just about as much time as the budget to get to work. And the Iran deal is dead unless you come and save it. So those are all things that that have to have to be addressed quickly. There's gonna be a lot. 
It's a lot. Meg, your first 50 days in office. Well, we're going to go on a benevolence and humility world tour to rival Elton John's final tour here. It's going to take, it literally has to take several years. It's the first thing is, is that your cabinet secretaries are going out and meeting with very strategic, you know, peers throughout the world and essentially being a little bit humble. You know, it's kind of like a breakup. Like, do you want that person or not? You know, like if there's a bad breakup and you messed up, you better come correct because what we've seen is the world has realized how they can mitigate the malign influence of the United States by working with each other and just kind of being like, we'll deal with them later when they get their shit together, right? Yeah. Like, and that is problematic because we have lost influence and maybe it was actually good we lost some of it so we understood we got that swift five across the eye it's like you might still be big dog but all the rest of us can eat without you but that being said i think we've got to do some work domestically with our immigrant communities our muslim community those who are black and brown and really understand, and it's not give them a copy of like Ibrahim Kendi's book or, you know, something like that. Like that's just not going to work. But it's the idea of, you talked about it, the diplomatic floor play, and it has to come from everybody. Department of Agriculture, that secretary better be gone all the time out meeting with his peers, right? Meeting with actual local, like farmers, small farmers, You've got to get at the heart of what powers America, and they are Americans. And that's Americans everywhere across this country. And so there has to be a lot of stuff done domestically. Do a little soul searching and figure out if we want the guy or girl. Like, just be like, hey. We can have maybe Cardi B and Meg open up. Let me stop. Okay. <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> Let me stop. <laughs> Similar to to Meg, I actually would start with the State Department. I am a proponent of a diplomacy first, and I, I like the idea of a world tour, but I would absolutely look to restore what's been broken at the State Department and reinvest in a strong diplomatic core outside the State Department. So ag, commerce, I think that uh, as we talked about, these folks are the first line of defense when they're out there at the embassy, at the consulates, um, on all the missions, and they are our voice. And who better to help restore the individuals who sacrifice their own lives and their family stability to represent us? And so I would heavily focus on getting our diplomacy together so that we can do the work of um, truly making America uh, the leader that it, that it should be. So I want to thank you for this conversation, Anka, Meg, Lacey. They've got a lot to do. They've got a lot of ideas. But Meg, how can people find you if they want to follow your work? I am in residence for the next two to three years at um, the University of Pennsylvania at Perry World House. And so if you go to um, the University of Pennsylvania's webpage at upenn.edu, you can just type in Perry World House and find me there. We will be hosting 
virtually for a while, a lot of exceptional events throughout the year. And I highly encourage people because a lot of the things we talked about today are the types of things that Perry Worldhouse talks about. You can also reach me at meggulliford.com or on Twitter at mkgulliford, G-U-L-I-F-O-R-D. But yeah, really excited. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Meg. Lacey, how can people find you? Let's just talk about names that are spelled funny because mine is spelled really funny. Uh, so if you want to find me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is L-A-I-C-I-E. Please don't edit out one of my eyes, even though that is totally logical. It's L-A-I-C-I-E on Twitter. We have Ink Stick Media, which is ink like a pen, stick like something you hit somebody with. Uh, inkstickmedia.com is <laughs> um, uh, is an online foreign policy what magazine. I know. I'm trying to the humanity. What happened to the humanity? <laughs> it's true. I turned violent all of a sudden. I'm really sorry for that. I, I get really excited about sharing. Um, I have lots to say. Instinctmedia.com is the place to find all of our good stuff. You can find everything there. You can find the podcast there also. Our podcast is in collaboration with PRX, and um, we're also on broadcast on, uh, on the world, which runs on NPR stations. And uh, we have a newsletter called Critical State that we publish with them. So come and see all the things. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Anka, how can people find you? I may be the most boring person here because just follow me on Twitter, Anka underscore Lee. Um, I also actually just wrote a personal reflection on what's happening in Hong Kong uh, for political. So it's, uh, I think the headline was the optimistic case for Hong Kong, which is I'm trying to maintain some sense of hope. Take a look if you have the time. But thank you. Perfect. Thanks so much, Anka, for that. If you want some more of What in the World, you can find us, of course, wherever you listen to podcasts, online at www.whatintheworldpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at WITWpod. As I did at the top of the episode, I want to thank the Truman National Security Project, Rakia, Jessica, Elizabeth, and all of the executive staff and interns for making this show possible. I want to be sure I give a special shout out to the Diversity and National Security Network. Asha, Laura, Cliff, thank you for your collaboration and partnership. This has been amazing. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>